0: Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same day local delivery or fast free delivery
1: nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com.
0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense and his clear, open heart. In order to continue presenting these podcasts, we need your support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack and you can donate there or you can go through our Amazon or Audible affiliate links. And that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention.
1: The autumn evening is fresh and cool, says poet Ryo Staff in hand, I walk through the gate. Wisteria and ivy grow together along the winding mountain path. Deer rest quietly among fallen maple leaves. The old pines are full of poems. I bend down for a drink of pure spring water. There's a gentle breeze and the round moon hangs above. Standing alone, I pretend to be a crane slowly floating among the clouds. And Ryokan, who is the most beloved of Japanese Zen poets is someone who invites the reader or the listener into this world of stillness and presence in all kinds of ways. But as you get quiet and things in a way become more open and still, they also become more mysterious. And Wes certainly talked about that mystery the other night. Who are we born on this planet with all these you know, one million forms of beetles and, uh, you know, 4.3 billion years of life evolution culminating in you, for the, not culminating, taking a temporary hiatus in you (laughs) as it continues to evolve. What is our place in this? I was teaching for the hospices in the Bay Area some years ago, and At one of the meal breaks, I sat at the table um, and next to me um, I met a hospice worker named Salam Khalili, who ended up becoming one of my closest friends in my life, um, who was a Palestinian man at that time in his early 50s. And I turned to him and we introduced each other and I said, what brings you to hospice work? I hadn't met many Palestinian immigrants on the hospice circuit. Um, And he said, well, it seems important to be able to sit with people and let them know that dying is perfectly safe. And I said, oh? (laughs) And he said, um, I asked him, I said, you know, how did you learn that? Where does that come from? So he said, let me tell you a story. I'm good already, tell me a story. (laughs) He said he had been a journalist in um, Jerusalem back in the 1960s, Um, and he was writing about a free Palestinian state just around the time of the 1967 war when it became um, illegal to write in that way. And so he was periodically rounded up and thrown in jail, and then he would write more about Palestinian freedom and be thrown in jail again. And over the course of that, time he spent about seven years in Israeli prisons and jails and he said some of the guards were fine and some were not Um, he said I had some this Russian guard who'd been a successful engineer in Russia and then immigrated to Israel and couldn't get an engineering job and all he could get was the night guard job in a prison and he was bitter and but being bitter he also was mean and I was in my cell one night, and he said something or whatever, and I just tried to answer him. And he didn't like my answer, and he hauled me out of the cell, and he began to hit me and beat me. And the next thing I know, I died. He said my body was on the floor. He was beating me, and then he was kicking me with this steel-toed boot, and blood was coming out of my mouth. And I later read the police report, and they thought I had died. But actually, he said, I floated out of my body as happens in accidents and near-death experiences, and when you die too, you'll see, but we'll leave that for the moment. <laughs> and um, I was there, kind of on the ceiling, witnessing all this very peacefully, you know, the body and the boot and all of that. He paused and turned to me and said, and then something interesting happened. <laughs> and I said, oh? And he said, yes. Then it was as if, at some moment, the bubble of my sense of self popped completely, and I wasn't located on the ceiling anymore. Um, That sense of identity dissolved, and I became everything. He said, and I was the green paint flecking on the walls of the prison cell, and I was the bars that you could see there and I was the goat, you could hear bleeding outside on the hillside, and I was the body there in the bottom of the room, but I was also the boot kicking it, and I was everything. And he said, and then this immense joy filled me, because realizing I was everything, I also knew I could never die, that I was life itself. He said, and there was this, just this luminosity and joy And then the next thing I knew, he said, I woke up a couple or a few days later in this battered body at the bottom of a cell. Um, And it took a long time to heal. And it's important to understand that it's not what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians, although they are, but this is war. And it happens on all sides. It's not just one-sided, this story. Um, And gradually I healed. He said, and when I got out the next time, I couldn't work for the Palestinians anymore it made absolutely no sense to struggle for Palestinian freedom. He said that the closest I could come is, I married a Jewish woman and we have Israeli-Palestinian children. That's the closest I could come to what I understood. Um, And he became a peacemaker. He was an artist and a visionary in many, many ways. But then he said, yeah, I go to hospice and sit with people who are dying and kind of remind them it's okay. don't, Don't worry about it, it's perfectly safe. So this is that question Wes was raising, who are we? I practiced in India with a sage named Sri Nisargadat in Bombay over a number of years. And um, Nisargadat was one of the freest spirits of beings that I ever met. And I remember I was staying in this kind of pretty, funky hotel down near the Taj. There were these nice hotels and then there were the ones that were just barely, I didn't have much money, you know. I think the name of it was Decent Hotel. Because people had heard travelers looking for a decent hotel. And somebody had this great idea, all right, that's the name of my hotel, right? And that's what it was, just barely decent hotel anyway. But I would take the double-decker buses across Bombay, and um, all of Bombay would go by. And I was just so happy and bliss because I was with this person who wanted nothing from me, and whose whole teaching was about freedom from identity of any kind. And he said, look, I hold up this hand, and I touch this one, and this is me, and I feel, oh, this fingernail needs trimming, it's a little sharp, and, oh gosh, the skin is kind of dry there. This is the object, and this is me experiencing it. Now I can switch my identity and this is me, and I feel this one, and notice, oh, the nails are trimmed a bit better, oh, but the lines and creases are deeper, I can see it, and this one's a little sweaty, you know, and this is me, and that's the object." He said, and the mystery, which is central to Buddhist psychology, is that this function of creating a sense of identity or self can be placed in all different kinds of things. This body is me, these thoughts are me, This work is me. This political philosophy is mine. We can identify with all kinds of things. These are his words. He says, whatever you think you are, you take it to be the truth. The habit of imagining yourself as perceivable and describable, I am this and I'm that and this and that, is very strong with you. You identify with everything so easily. I find this impossible. The understanding that I am not this and not that is the ground of my being. Wisdom says, I am nothing. Love says, I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. So we can identify with our political views or our roles, but the weird thing is it changes. You could be a libertarian at one point in your life and a democrat another, a republican another, and an anarchist another. That's Wes, we'll leave him. Um, You can, uh, but he lives in Berkeley, what do you expect? Um, You can feel yourself to be a son or daughter, right? That's my role when you're with your parents. Then if you have children, You know, you walk out the door, you walk in a different room, and you're not a son or daughter anymore. You're the mother, you're the father, and you're in a completely different identity. You know, or you're the student sometime, and you're the teacher, the other. But there you are, the professor, going to take your driver's exam, you know, and now you're taking the exam, and you're the student. And we change roles all the time. Or you you, you identify with your personality, and you think that's who you are. I hope not. And the whole of spiritual life invites a shift of identity. And the way it happens in the retreat, in the way we're practicing together, is first you stabilize attention. The sign in Las Vegas in the casino that reads, You must be present to win. And so you practice that here, basically, with your breath and body. And the training, Gandhi called it blessed monotony. Because it's a little bit boring at first, anyway, the breath, another breath, another breath, and so forth. Um, But what it does is it collects the scattered attention so that you actually can be here more frequently, more presently, and more deeply. It's as if you're cleaning the lens of perception so you can see what's actually going on in this human life, this human mystery. And you gradually, by with this perseverance, quiet the mind a bit at a time. You open the heart because you attend without judging. You just notice what's here. this breath is long or short, these experiences come and go with this loving awareness. And once you've stabilized your attention, then the next step, which we are doing together with mindfulness, is you look around. You take the loving awareness. And you begin to examine, again, Wes talked about it as a kind of scientist. Um, And Buddhist psychology in that way is really a a science of mind. Uh, And you begin to look at the body. And you're looking at the body in this wonderful qigong classes that um, you have a couple of times a day, the tija so masterfully teaches for us and you start to feel the energy and the movement when it's closed, when it's open. You sit, and you pay attention, where the pain, what are the sensations, what it means to open, the field of energy of the body. You become intimate with the body. And then as you become quieter, what seems like a solid body begins to break up in your perception and dissolve. And the more that you pay attention. Trudy talked about it. You notice what you call a pain and then more deeply it's throbbing and twisting and fire and pinpricks and needle. And not only that, the more closely you pay attention, it's always changing. And any place you put your attention in the body starts to become a field of anicca, of change. And then the body starts to become more like a waterfall of sense and bodily experience. And the more closely you attend, it becomes pixelated, you know, those little pixels on a screen. It turns out perception is made of tiny little moments, tiny, tiny moments of experience. And they start to show themselves in the body. And then another interesting thing happens. It starts to shift if you bring in loving awareness and compassion from being your pain. First it's your pain, and then it's, oh, the energies of pulsing, fire, um, throbbing, twisting. Um, But then, as you breathe and pay attention, it becomes the body's pain. It's not really yours to identify with. And if you do compassion practice, as we do sometimes, you start to realize that it's not even the body's pain, it's the pain of incarnation that's shared by everyone. It's simply the pain. It's not yours. You didn't do something wrong. It's part of the pain of having a body. And so you begin to notice what is true about this physical life in this body. It's always changing. You can't possess it. You can go to the gym and feed it right and move it around and things like that, but it has its own life. Let's see. Here's the story. And as you pay attention to it in this way, a kind of wisdom grows. You say, this is what a body's life is. So this is from a good friend, Frank Ostaseski, who started the Zen Center Hospice Project some time ago. And he says, some years ago at our Zen Hospice Project, there were two men in the house, both who were living with and then dying from AIDS complications. One of them, Rick, in addition to his AIDS diagnosis, had suffered a stroke. Because of the stroke and his aphasia, he had trouble articulating what he wanted to say. Frustration and anger followed, and it was very difficult for him. And all our attempts to help bounced off a sort of defensive shield he constructed. Down the hall was Stephen. When you went in Stephen's room, you felt like you were going into a sanctuary. He was almost transparent. He was also very close to dying. I went to Rick one afternoon and I said, it looks like Stephen might be dying soon. And if you wanna say goodbye to him, now might be the time. I helped him down the hall. He was paralyzed on one side and I eased him into Stephen's room and he sat down on the bed next to Stephen. I didn't say anything. I just backed out of the room and stayed in the doorway so I could watch. It was so beautiful. I don't think they said a word for about 20 minutes. They accompanied each other, not trying to make anything happen, not trying to resolve anything. And after a while, Rick just nodded. And Stephen said, yeah, that was great. And Rick got up and I helped him back to his room. And Stephen died later that afternoon. Rick was looking at his destiny. He knew he too would be dying soon. And Stephen just mirrored back to him the capacity that lives in each of us for compassion, and understanding. He could sense where Rick was. He didn't need to say anything. And Rick's heart and soul just opened to Stephen. Stephen had simply rested in his being because he wasn't afraid to embrace the suffering. He was willing to sense suffering and be with Rick in that way. And so we started to become wise. This is the body and we care for it and tend it and it has its life. And it's not exactly who you are. The more closely you pay attention, the more you'll see how what seems solid in the body is always changing. Now the same thing begins to happen when you pay attention as you have become mindful of thoughts and feelings. And there comes a kind of shift of identity from what seems to be you. Well, I'll we'll put it this way. This is from the Time Magazine neuroscience issue. The poll quote. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there's no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. <laughs> this is Time Magazine, not the Buddha speaking, Right? So you start to look more deeply as you see the body start to dissolve and become a field of life rather than something rigid. You start to look at thoughts and feelings. And at first you can see your identity, your hopes, your fears, your history, your hurts, your traumas, your defenses, and those kind of layers. And you pay attention to them with a kind of Attention, and as you do, you begin to see that the layers in the experience—they're not exactly who you are. They're history, their stories, their feelings. So, this from a book called uh, "Tattoos on the Heart," a wonderful book about homeboy industries in, in uh, Los Angeles, and Father Greg Boyle, who works with these young kids. And he said, "This kid comes into homeboys, and he's all swagger." you know, his head bobs side to side, and he's kind of strutting his self through, and we shake hands, and he's a gangbanger for sure, and he scowls at me, etched on his face. I don't know why he comes in, but I say, what's your name? Sniper, and he sneers. Okay, look, I'd been down this block before. I say to him, I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom, and she took one look at your ass and said, Sniper, so come on, dog, what's your name? (laughs) Gonzalez. he relents a little. Okay now, son, I know that the staff and they let you in here called you by that last name, but I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? Cabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oh, no, Duda. Son, I'm, not, I'm looking for birth certificate here. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening. But there's embarrassment and a newfound vulnerability. Napoleon, he managed to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when your Jafita calls you, she doesn't use the whole nine yards. Come on, Mejito, do you have an apado? What's your mom call you? Then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he's not visited in some time, his voice, body, language, the whole being taking on a new shape before my eyes. Sometimes, his voice so quiet, I lean in, sometimes, when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me Napito. And I watch this kid move, transform from sniper to Gonzalez to Cabron to Napoleon, to Napito, We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. <laughs> but you start to see this, and if you see it with loving awareness, there comes a kind of deep acceptance. Jules Pfeiffer, the cartoon I like, he shows a man sitting there a little bit disconsolately reflecting. And in the first panel it says... Um, I inherited my father's way of dressing and sense of style, the second panel. I inherited my father's philosophy and perspective on life, third panel. I inherited my father's curiosity and way of responding to things and acting in the world, fourth panel. And I inherited my mother's contempt for my father, you know. And there it is, there's your, you know, your history, right? But here's the really important thing. Ramdas, when he was teaching early on in his American teaching career, came back from India, long beard and beads, when he was really very much like the Hindu guru, Babla Ramdas. And he was up there, and somebody raised their hand and said, Ramdas, aren't you Jewish? You know, what's with the Hindu stuff? And he said, Yes, I am. I was bar mitzvah, he said, as I was, you know. And and not only that, he said, I love, there's beautiful things in the Jewish tradition. The, the Hasidic masters are like great Zen masters and their stories and the, the Kabbalah has this whole wonderful mystical teachings of the nature of the world and consciousness. So he said, I love that too. He said, but remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> and it's a, he was very witty, you know, and at the same time, there's something really profound about it, um, that who you are is not just your personal history. So you get to see it when you sit here, and you get to tend it in some beautiful way. But the the work of it is actually not as a grim duty. The point is not self-improvement. You've tried that. You've gone to the gym, you've gone to therapy, you've taken your vitamins, you know, you do all that stuff. And it has some benefit. But the point is not a grim duty. It's that really this practice is an act of love. It's an ability to be present for your humanity and our common humanity with an act of love. And as you do, what happens is that in neuroscience they call it the window of tolerance, the capacity to feel your losses and hurts and wounds And your joy and ecstasy and longing and love and all of that, that becomes wider and wider, and you can live more freely in the energies of your own life. And it's a beautiful thing. These emotions come, and you name them sad, sad, or frightened, frightened, or whatever. And the movement is to give them space and say, All right, show me your dance. Fear, fear, well, it's really scary. See how big it is, fear, fear. Terror, terror, oh my gosh, terror, terror. How big are you? I feel like I'm going to die, dying, 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 dying. Okay, I wonder what they're going to have for lunch, you know. Because the mind has no pride, right? Okay, dying, dying again, you know. And you start to see the kind of emptiness of this. um, Because the stories are only stories. And then you begin to shift from the content of your experience these sensations, these feelings, these thoughts, mindfulness shifts to the process. And you start to see that the body is just a field of hot and cold pleasure, pain, sensations that are always arising and passing. You begin to notice the impermanence of it all, um, unbidden, selfless in a way, happening on its own. And you begin to see the stories you know, all the stories you tell, and then when you shift from the content of the story to the process, as Spring was talking about with the boats, you begin to notice first that all stories are one-sided. Generally, you side with yourself, by the way, if you hadn't noticed. Um, But they're not exactly true. And then you begin to realize, oh, this is just stories, this is the river of stories, and the river of feelings, and the river of sensations, and what we are is this river of experience. <laughs> and so you remember when you were in high school and you read Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, and the denouement and at the end, he comes and he sits by the river and sees all the different things passing in the river and doesn't bind himself to anyone, becomes this sage. So these words from the Buddha, which no doubt Hermann Hesse had written, written, uh, read before his writing, he says, Suppose a man or a woman who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they floated along and watched them carefully and examined them. And after doing so, they would appear to them as empty, unreal, and unsubstantial. In exactly the same way, does the meditator behold the bodily phenomena, physical sensations of all kinds, the river of feelings that come one after another, you've noticed, haven't you? The river of perceptions and views, the river of thoughts and the states of consciousness themselves. And as they arise and he or she watches them and examines them carefully, after examining them, they appear as they are in substantial, empty, void, and without a self. Thoughts appear, and vanish without a trace. Feelings come, and then they disappear. Sounds come and go. And it all comes trooping out of the void, to use Rumi's line, and appearing for a moment and disappearing, and then something else comes on stage. And we begin to shift then from caring as much about the content. You need to honor the content and feel it and be respectful of it and you know, necessary healing some. But then at some point you begin to realize that it's not just the content, but the process of life is a river. It's a flow, all dissolving. And as it says in the Heart Sutra, form is not different than emptiness. Wherever you look is insubstantial and not solid. At first this is a little bit terrifying for some people. Oh my gosh, nothing is solid. But then you get to where my teacher Ajahn Chah talked about as wisdom. He said, oh, yes, he called it the wisdom of insecurity, the wisdom of uncertainty. He said, you see all this in like Springs Lama that she talked about. His instruction was, so now what to do? You relax. You just let it be, because it's always been this way. You don't have to fix it. And you become more the space that allows this... Ever-changing, dissolving, arising, passing, hello, goodbye, appearances to come and go. And this is the birth of a deeper kind of wisdom. So you shift from the content of experience to know the process of life itself. And then there comes another shift. You shift from the focus on the process of things being born and disappearing out of emptiness to the witnessing itself. So my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who practiced very diligently as a young monk in the forests and the caves, and out where there were tigers, and did all that stuff you read about. um, After about eight or ten years of arduous practice, um, he sought out the most famous forest meditation master of the era, a different Ajahn named Ajahn Man. And went and paid his respects and said, May I tell you about my practice? May I get some guidance? He said, Come in the morning. So he did. And he said, I've sat through fear and confusion and then opened to great states of luminous mind and um, uh, visions and deep samadhi and insights. And he sort of laid out all the things that he'd learned. Probably a little bit pleased with himself. And Ajahn Man looked back at him and said, Ja, you missed the point. <laughs> he said, those are just experiences. Heaven, hell, pleasure, pain, light, dark. He said, those experiences are like going to the movies. And there's a romantic comedy. These are like the boats that Spring talked about. And there's a, you know, a war movie, and there's a documentary, and then there's a, you know, um, a nature movie. Those are all just appearances of sense experiences and thoughts and states, large and small, light and dark. But the only question that matters is to whom are they happening? Turn your attention from the experiences back to the awareness itself, to that which is the witness, the witnessing. And that movement back to become what Ajahn Chah called the one who knows, the knowing, is the movement toward liberation. Now of course this sounds a little esoteric to you, this is why that poor lama had so much trouble with spring and the others, Um, but it isn't actually. If you look in the mirror, you notice you've aged, right? Face it, right? (laughs) West likes to say the hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard. <laughs> you know, it starts to droop. It loses its fur in some places, you know. It sags, it wrinkles. It, you know, it does what it does, right? That's what it does. But the weird thing is, and you all know this, that you don't necessarily feel older. And that's because it's only the body that has aged. Not you. And the body is... You know, made of food stuff, made of the earth. It had, today it's made of lentils and, you know, pomegranate seeds and eggplant, and stuff like that. Weird, isn't it? But there it is, okay. And it's little and it gets bigger and it ages and it goes through its cycle and so forth. But the consciousness that looks in the mirror and says, hmm, getting a little older there, aren't you? Losing the fur, wrinkling, whatever it's doing, sagging huh, I wonder how this incarnation is going. It's as if, um, instead of being identified with the body in that simple moment, you're actually able to see the arc of, of incarnation of life as a witness to it. A bit like salam, and you don't even have to be beaten, you know, or to near near death or something like that. You just look in the mirror. And what it does is it invites you to make space to rest in the space of loving awareness. You are the loving awareness that is the witnessing of what arises. You shift your attention from the content to the process and from the process to actually become the, become identified with or realize that who you are is the, is the awareness itself. And if you want to do a little 10, 15 second Experiment, don't change your posture, but try for the next 10 seconds to not be aware. Do anything you need to. Hold your hands, eyes, ears. I'm not going to be aware. Try it. 15 seconds. Go for it. <laughs> you can't do it, can you? Awareness is quite trustworthy, it's here. And so the shift then becomes to awareness itself. Then the question is, all right, if the, the identity shifts from the content to process to awareness itself, how do I function in this world? And I remember this, seeing this wonderful video that Tisha will know well of Oshiba Sensei, the founder of Aikido, um, Who would studied all these other martial arts in Japan and then founded Aikido, I guess in the 1940s or something like that. And he was like the llama that, that Spring mentioned, he was tiny. He was like four foot nine with a little beard. He looked like one of those classic sages you see in a scroll painting. Um, and in this particular video, or it was a movie actually, because we slowed down the frames to try and understand it. He invited a dozen of the top killer martial artists from Japan, the 10th Don Black Belt in Taekwondo and Karate and whatever, to come and take him on, basically. You know, come on, bring it, bring it. And so he's standing in the center, and there are these big guys who all tower over him, you know, buff and clearly got a lot of power. Um, And then there's a moment where he says, "Okay," And the next thing you see, and we slow it down, watch frame by frame, he smiles, and he sort of turns in a circle, and they all fall down. (laughs) It's just astonishing. And we slow it down. What does he do? And it's sort of like Star Wars or something like that, the force. And he's just there, smiling, and letting their energy just pass through him, and they all fall down. It's delicious to see. All right, a story for you, another kind of way of understanding the functioning of this. One meditation practitioner, Maria, works as a nurse in the emergency room of the local hospital. She describes how she's learned to use the art of resting in awareness. Sometimes it's not too busy and I can work on automatic, check on a patient, or do the paperwork while my mind drifts off to think about a million other things. Then we might get a whole crowd of incoming patients, accidents, heart attacks, asthma, emergencies. I do my part, but I'm also tuned into the whole of what's going on. I've learned to open the awareness. It's as if my mind gets spacious and still present, sensitive to what is needed, and yet kind of detached at the same time. I guess it's like the flow state that athletes talk about. I'm just in the middle doing all the right things yet some part of me is just watching it all silent. It happens more these days, not just at work, and when I do my meditation practice, it gets stronger. I had a big fight with my son, and in the middle of it, I could feel my body tightening up and how right I thought my view was. Just feeling that, I relaxed and shifted to the space of awareness, and things opened up. I was saying no, but I could also feel all the love underneath and how these were just our roles, and we had to play them well. And behind it, it was all spacious. It was all okay. So the question, how do I function? It turns out that not only is form, form is not different than emptiness, as it says in the Heart Sutra, but it also says that form is form and emptiness is emptiness. And as you become more spacious, you also become more tender, you become more respectful of life. And I remember some years ago when there were cosmonauts in the space stations, Russian cosmonauts, and they brought a fish tank with a few fish to see how they would do in zero gravity. And after a week or two, the fish got really sick and started to look like they were going to die. And they were so upset, and they called down to the earth, what can we do to save these goldfish? You know, now, if you were on earth, they would go fishing, right? But when you're far from earth, any little bit of life is so precious. And then the story went on, whether it was them or another group of cosmonauts. There was some malfunction there, and it wasn't clear how they would get back, and they sent up another pod to bring them back down. And they finally got back to earth, but it was quite dangerous and dicey. And they opened the hatch in Kazakhstan, where they landed. And they got out, and they bowed down, and they kissed the ground. It was so beautiful to come back home to this planet, to this, to this Earth. Because this is the only place in the whole wide, vast galaxies where you can eat baked Alaska. <laughs> it's the only place where you can fall in love or watch the whales breach. Or see the lizards out there do their push-ups like they do sometimes, right? Or the face of children. And so what happens as you become more spacious is not that you become distant from life, but you have the space, as Nisgarh said, wisdom says I am nothing, love says I am everything. And you feel more deeply connected with all of it. A poem again from Marie Howe. called What the Living Do. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days, some utensil probably fell down there, and the draino won't work but smells dangerous, and the crusty dishes have piled up waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the every day we spoke of. It's winter again, the sky's a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again, and again later, when buying a hairbrush, this is it. Parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold, what you call that yearning what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whomever to call or not call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, an unbuttoned coat, then I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. So there is something that grows in this spaciousness of the heart and mind of a profound kind of tenderness. As the Native Americans would say, Mitakuyasin, all are my relatives. This is my life, this is my place. And it brings a kind of fearlessness that's not the fearlessness without fear. But when Trudy and I were in Burma leading a trip last year to bring a whole group of people from the foundation that I work for to the clinics and schools and um, programs for children and women and health things in the far reaches of Burma, beautiful, amazing things. Um, we met a nun up near the China border, and um, she had a big nunnery. Um, but she ordained as a nun relatively young, in her 20s. I'm not sure whether she ordained before or after this, but somehow she got she got cancer in her 20s, um, and it was me- metastasized, and they wanted to do surgery on her. Um, and if you've ever been to an upper Burma hospital, especially back in those days, you would avoid surgery because um, they really had, there, there was, they, they had nothing. Um, so she wouldn't do it. And she went out in the jungles um, and found an old auntie, an old nun who was an herbalist, who said, I think I can help you, and gave her these very powerful herbs to take and said, but you have to meditate. And you have to meditate a long time, which was, in her case, two years. And she talked to us. She said, I sat up all night, night after night after night, and the cancer in my body was like fire. It was burning. And I sat and I burned and I burned and it moved from one part of my body to another. And I sat and I sat and I sat with it. You know, and I did my herbs and I did my prayers. And I sat and I sat and then I sat more. Unmoving. And she healed herself. And she came back to this town where we visited her, and either as a nun or became a nun, people started to come to her, they were attracted by her presence, um, and they became her students. Can you teach me what you learned? And gradually she built this big four-story monastery temple for women, um, which our foundation helped her to build. And the people that she had come there were ones that I would be nervous about coming on a retreat. Because she took the mentally ill, she took the PTSD from all the wars that were happening around there, she took the homeless people, she took the battered women, and she took people who were in the worst shape in the society around, and she said, come, I will teach you to meditate. You know, I would think, well, I'm not sure if they can sit with that stuff, right? (laughs) But we went in a room together, and there was this big hall filled with these women and they were all sitting looking like you very quietly and steady and she was giving some teachings and then she came out. And what it was is in a way kind of simple. Um, They came in and they had the tragedies and the mental illness and the problems and so forth and she could look at them and say yeah, I've suffered like you and I just sat there And it changed, and you can do it. And there was something about her. It was like her spirit was stronger than their illness. Her spirit was stronger than their disturbance. And it was like titanium or something like that. It was really kind of unshakable. And so she got all these people, and they did it. It was like she conferred on them some power that she had learned in herself. And when we were walking down the stairs um, to go out, an old woman with not very many teeth left who didn't speak a lot of English came up to us and grabbed Trudy by the arm um, and looked at her and then touched her heart and said, peace of mind, peace of mind. Like this is what she had found in this place and she wanted Trudy to know this. And you could have wept to see it. So the, the capacity that you're learning here is both tenderness and love and also a kind of courage to be with things not as perfection. Um, The point isn't, even fearlessness isn't without fear. Um, Five, six years ago, whenever it was, um, I went through a really difficult time. I passed out in front of a retreat like this on the East Coast. Trudy was there, Wes was there. And um, I woke up after about a minute or a minute and a half with all these doctors peering down at me and went, got all the scans and all that kind of stuff. And um, then started to get dizzy again and got all these tremors and things. And I got misdiagnosed with something kind of like ALS. And because it was happening, the tremors are getting worse. And so with the diagnosis I got was that this is happening quickly and in the next number of months your body's going to deteriorate, you know, in this way. And it looks like that will be accompanied with dementia. Now, I thought I was chill with death, okay, meditating, dying, you know, sitting in the charnel grounds in the monastery, picturing my own death. But my picture didn't include dementia, you know, and it didn't include my body. I mean, it was, this was a little, and I got really scared. I got, it turned out it was a misdiagnosis, happily. Um, but for a while, I was surprised at how anxious I got. And I remember going to talk to Ramdas about it in Hawaii at one point saying, you know, I thought I my practice I'll be die like the Zen master or whatever. And he just laughed. He said, oh yeah, I flunked the course a couple times before, <laughs> you know. The idea is not to perfect yourself. You've tried that for too long, right? Um, the idea is to perfect your love. It's to perfect your kindness. Because you have a personality. It's what you got. You have a body and it does what it does. And so... Fearlessness starts to come of a different kind. Um, The great Zen teacher, Sengsthan, says to be enlightened or awakened is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. It's an amazing line. To be enlightened is to not be anxious about imperfection. You're not perfect, it's not perfect, and it never will be according to the way you think the universe should be. It's actually the way that it is. And there grows instead a kind of honesty in practice. Uh, My good friend Ajahn Sumedho um, likes to use the phrase, it's like this. You're sitting there and you start to get very sad. And instead of just noting sadness, sadness, he would say, oh, sadness is like this. And I hate this sadness. I've been crying for so long, I wish it would go away. Oh, hating is like this, you know but now I'm doing better, you know, gratitude is like this. And you start to simply see, truthfully, this is the way things are. And with that truthfulness, the ability just to name what's so and say, whatever your experience is, is like this, that space begins to open up. And it gives you the ability to move through it and um, respond as uh, Marie did in the emergency room in that story that I read. Ruth Dennison, who died, one of our colleagues and founding teachers of these centers, and um, she took care of her husband, this was a decade or more ago, um, when he was dying, and he um, he had Alzheimer's, and he, was, he took a great deal of care. And so she would be driving between their home in L.A. where she would take care of Henry, um, and then back to her center out in Joshua Tree. It was about a three-hour drive, or four-hour drive, back and forth. Um, and she was doing it for months on end. And she got really exhausted. And she came to do a teaching up in Portland with a friend. Um, and um, there she was icon of you know wisdom and she sat in front of the room completely exhausted and she started to do her teaching and she's told the story about henry and his alzheimer's and how she's trying to tend him and that's become her dharma practice and so forth and she went on to something else and then she said did i tell you about henry and she started to tell the story all over again and told it all and people are like uh-oh you know, and then there was a pause for a while and she talked about something else. She said, and now I need to tell you about Henry. And the third time she started to tell it, people's hearts sank and some of them just got up and started to leave, you know, like, okay, the woman's batty and lost it. And they got to the door and she said, wait, wait a second, she said. Don't go yet, she said, because you have a chance to see something really unusual tonight. You have a chance to see a senior Dharma teacher fail. Come, sit back down. So she knew enough that it turned out it was temporary. It was just lots of it was loss of sleep and other things like that, and you know that all passed in not much time. But there's a way in which it wasn't about perfection for her. It was she was so um, honest about this is the way human incarnation works. This is our life. And this, too, you can see with love. Thich Han wrote this beautiful book about love and the Dharma. You know, and he writes these, because he's a great poet, he writes these kind of poetic things. And this was going to be about the um, the Brahmaviharas about love and compassion and joy and equanimity and those qualities. And I thought, oh, great, a book on love from Thich Nhat Hanh. I'll get some good stories or whatever. But I also thought, I kind of know these teachings. You know, I've been reading everybody else's books about them. So I picked it up. And the first chapter is, you know, loving kindness and how it operates and uh, reading along, la, la, la. And then I get to the second chapter and it begins... She was 20 years old when I first saw her walk down the stairs of the temple in Chu Lai, Vietnam, and fell in love. And I thought, oh, now I really want to read this. (laughs) And what had happened, actually, is that Thich Nhat Hanh decided to give these teachings on love and on the Brahma Viharas. And so he started in that La da way. Here's the Brahma Vihara's love and compassion and so forth, the divine abodes and so forth. And everybody was listening politely and half snoozing, you know, we've heard these and it's good and so forth. And then the second lecture, he began with that line. She was 20 years old when I first saw her. And, you know, in Vietnam they wear the Aodais, these amazing kind of silk, long silk dresses that look like, um, they're angelic really, they're really quite amazing garments. And Thich Nhat Hanh, then in this book, in every other chapter, talks about what it was like to be a monk and fall in love with this young girl, you know, when he was pretty young himself. And of course you want to turn the pages and see what happened and so forth. And part of it, part of what made it so important and so beautiful again, is that as the mind quiets and the heart opens and you start to see that what you are is the river, that you are nothing, that is to say, you can't find this, I'm this, I'm I'm all of this, I'm part of everything. I'm nothing and everything, things start to dissolve and become spacious. Then innately, your Buddha nature, these qualities of love, of equanimity and peace, of a kind of tenderness and care, of a fearlessness that's not a lack of fear, but an ability to take one step at a time and say this too, to be truthful in this way, grow. And you come to trust the process and trust this mystery. You trust the meditation itself. It knows how to open, it does. You just have to bring your attention to this body and mind. Um, And it invites you, all these qualities, It invites you and you invite them. As you start to notice calm coming, let it get stronger. As you start to notice your heart getting softer, invite it to open. As you start to feel that you can tolerate and be a little bit more fearless with the whole range of experience, invite that quality to grow. Inhabit your Buddha nature. It's a gift for you. And I was going through the airport in Miami some years ago and a guy came up to me and he said, uh, Jack, is that you? And I said, Oh, yeah. He said, Remember me, I sat the three month retreat with you in IMS in Massachusetts in 1977. <laughs> that was like 20 some years before. And I looked in, What's your name? And I kind of remembered. And then he said, You know, I think you would call me like a meditation failure. I said, oh? He said, yeah, I mean, I practiced pretty ardently for a while, but then it dropped away, I got into business, I got married, kids, and the whole thing. He said, and I didn't practice much, and I thought of myself as a failure. He said, but last year I had a heart attack. And it was pretty serious, and as I was being wheeled down the gurneys to, you know, getting prepped for heart surgery, it all came back. He said in that moment, immediately I knew what to do and I knew how to follow my breath and I knew how to be with the states that were coming. And I, he said, it's all in there. I was so, he said, I was so surprised and pleased. I'm not a failure after all. And I just bowed like that to him. It's too late for you, you know. You're already hooked, you're in it. What are you going to do? you Are going to cultivate greed and hatred and ignorance? I mean, it's too late, you know. And you look different, I have to tell you. We call it the Vipassana facelift, right? By the end of ten days, your eyes get clearer and brighter, and you open to the moon and the flowers. And there's some way in which you're able to be present for yourself, not in a perfectionistic way, but present with that kind of love. Be like the lion, not frightened by the noise, says the Buddha. Be like the wind, not caught in a web. Be like the lotus, not stained by the mud. Find your own way like the rhinoceros. Wander and find your way to freedom. It's a little poem from one of the Buddha's verses. I see this retreat a little bit like a greenhouse. All these potted plants, Buddha plants, basically, <laughs> they get watered from metta, you know. Beth does this beautiful self-cherishing metta and the little leaves come out, right? And Trudy does the little child metta and more little leaves come out, right? And then you sit there hour after hour and you learn to be patient and steady and more leaves come out and you start to become the Buddha that you are and shine in that way. So stay with it. It's a beautiful process.
0: Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com/jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.